Well, this evening we shall uh, carry on in our series in Two Kings. We are nearing the end. Just three or four more sermons probably after this one. And this evening we shall be looking at 2 Kings chapter 21. So please turn there in your copy of God's Word. So last week Benedict preached on the end of Hezekiah's reign, who was one of the best kings in the history of God's people. And now we come to his son, who was sadly the polar opposite. 2 Kings 21, let's hear the word of the Lord. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling, and omens, and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage And give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight. And have provoked me to anger. Since the day their fathers came out of Egypt. Even to this day. Moreover, 
Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers, and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, And Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulemeth, the daughter of Haraz of Jotbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. 2 Kings chapter 21 records a very dark chapter in the history of God's people, the The light of Hezekiah's reign, which we've been considering in recent weeks, is well and truly extinguished by the darkness of the reign of Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. And this almost relentlessly dark period in Judah's history is seen in uh, two main ways in our chapter this evening. It's seen in Manasseh's apostasy, his... uh, complete and irreversible turning away from the covenant Lord. And it's seen also in the announcement of God's coming wrath. And these are the two headings under which I want to uh, look at our passage this evening. An apostate man, heading number one, and heading number two, a wrathful God. An apostate man and a wrathful God. First of all then, we see in the first place an apostate man. King Manasseh, we have to say, was just about the worst king ever. King Manasseh really did plumb the depths of evil. And what's more, he did so for a very long time. He reigned as the first verse tells us, for 55 years, which actually constitutes the longest reign of any king of Judah or of Israel. 55 years of relentless evil. It was a terrible time for the nation. And what we see in this chapter are Manasseh's many perversions, his many evils being recounted 
in painstaking detail and forming a direct contrast with the godly reforms that his father Hezekiah had introduced. In this chapter, 2 Kings 21, we see the writer itemizing Manasseh's apostasy, going through it one by one. And he does so, I think, so that that we, the reader or the hearer, will feel something of its cumulative weight. And so let's just go through this list of evil, these perversions that Manasseh committed. To begin with, we see that Manasseh reinstituted fertility worship. That's what the author is highlighting at the beginning of verse 3, where he says that Manasseh rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And then we read in verse 7, that the carved image of Asherah that Manasseh had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Rebuilding the high places and erecting altars for Baal, making an Asherah and placing it in the temple was all part of this reinstitution of fertility worship, you would bow down before these gods so that they would make your land and your people fruitful. And so rather than following the example, the good and godly example of his father, Hezekiah, who had removed all of these elements of fertility worship, we see Manasseh instead following the example of the king who was really proverbial for evil, namely Ahab. Manasseh simply did not worship the Lord. He refused to do so. Instead, he bowed down, heart and soul, before false gods. He was, we might say, a born-again idolater, a thoroughly devout worshipper of Baal. And his idolatry is further emphasized when we're told in the second half of verse 3 that he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He even, verse 5, built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He is bringing into the temple of God not just fertility worship, but also what you could call astral worship, worship of the stars, worship of the heavenly phenomena, defiling God's holy temple that he had set apart where he had put his name with such perversions. Willfully and arrogantly and defiantly giving himself utterly to false religion. And just look at where this idolatry and this false religion led, verse 6. And Manasseh burned his son as an offering. Manasseh's idolatry led to the horror of child sacrifice. No doubt he thought that by offering up his son as a burnt offering to the gods, to the Baals, he would show just how committed, how earnest a worshipper he was, and he was bound, therefore, to get blessing. His idolatry led 
directly to the horror of sacrificing, burning as an offering his own son. And idolatry usually leads in that direction. Bowing down before the idol of Baal in 7th century BC Judah, or bowing down before the idol of freedom of choice in 21st century Britain, usually, if not always, results in babies being killed. Added to this, Manasseh, we're told, in verse 6, used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with wizards. You see, God's word was just a dead letter to him. He had the prophets. He had the law. But it was a dead letter to him. He ignored and disregarded what God's word, what God's law said. Instead, he practiced all kinds of divination. He thought that by these means he would get wisdom and knowledge and understanding, that he would know what to do, how to act. He trafficked, we might say, in the very powers of darkness. There is something clearly satanic about the leader of God's people, Manasseh. He is really a seed of the serpent rather than a seed of the woman. And then later on we read in verse 16 this, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Mass killing took place of innocent people under the reign of Manasseh. That went on for 55 years, year after year after year, more and more and more blood, innocent blood being shed by wicked King Manasseh. And it's clear that Manasseh's relentless evil rubbed off on his son Amon who, we are told in verse 20, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And note the triple emphasis we have in these verses. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. This is not to say that Ammon wasn't responsible for his wickedness, but you... You see the point that the author is making. He followed in his father's footsteps. He did exactly as his father had done. This was Manasseh's legacy. A legacy of evil. Manasseh truly, as verse 6 says, did much evil or he multiplied evil in the sight of the Lord. Provoking him to anger. There's fertility worship. There's astral worship. There's child sacrifice. There's divination. There's the shedding of much innocent blood. There is virtually no evil of which Manasseh was not guilty. But perhaps Manasseh's greatest evil consisted not so much in what he embraced 
but rather in what he abandoned. You see, he was a child of the covenant, born into a godly home. And this child of the covenant abandoned the Lord of the covenant. He hardened his heart against the living God. He apostatized. The Lord, who had put his name in the temple in Jerusalem, verse 4. The Lord who said, verse 7, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will be with you as your God. The Lord who promised, furthermore, in verse 8, I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers if they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. This Lord, this most loving, most gracious, most merciful covenant Lord, Manasseh despised. Manasseh did not simply disobey him. Bad enough, though that would be. No, Manasseh hated God. Cannot emphasize that enough. Manasseh hated the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He hated the God who had given himself to Manasseh and to Judah. But as we read in verse 9, they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil, notice that, more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. These were wicked nations. They were abominable nations. But Judah, at the time of Manasseh, was even more wicked I think because they had totally abandoned the Lord. Manasseh's life provides us this evening with a most salutary warning. Because Manasseh shows to us that you, you could be born into the family of God, as he was. You could have very godly parents, as he had. You could have the blessings and the promises of God's covenant, as Manasseh had. You could taste the grace of the Lord, and yet you could still spurn it all, and as it were, throw it back in God's face. And say, I'll have nothing to do with you. You could end up despising and hating the Lord. This can happen to individuals and it can happen to churches. We need to be warned by this example of Manasseh. He had it all. But he gave it all up and instead gave himself to live a life of sheer evil 
for 55 years. He was a thoroughly apostate man. Then secondly, we see a wrathful God. A most wrathful God. In response to Manasseh and to Judah's great evil, the Lord says in verses 10 to 15 that he is going to punish them. And you can see in these verses that he depicts his coming judgment using four images. First of all, we have the image of uh, tingling ears, verse 12. He says, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster, such evil, it could be translated, that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Their ears will tingle. And what this image is conveying is the sheer terror of the judgment that is going to be inflicted upon Judah by the Lord. You see, the horror of the message of God's impending judgment is going to be so great that it will produce in those who hear it a physical reaction. It will be so horrific, so terrifying that they will react in a very physical way. Their ears will tingle with shock, with shock at the message of the coming judgment that is coming upon them. And then second, the Lord uses uh, building imagery in verse 13. He says, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. Now what God is saying here is this. In the past, I have, as it were, measured Samaria and the dynasty of Ahab and they fell very, very far short of my standard. And what did I do as a result? I, I have already destroyed Samaria. They're, they're, they're gone. I've wiped them away off the face of the earth. And I've totally destroyed Ahab's dynasty because of their evil, because they did not measure up. And you, Jerusalem, you have not measured up. And therefore, you are next in my demolition program. In other words, the judgment that is coming upon you is inevitable. And then third, the Lord uses the language of the kitchen. As we go on in verse 13, we see him saying, And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. You know that when you wipe a dish and then turn it upside down, that you are ensuring effectively that there are, there's nothing left. No, no more stains. Uh, no more spots are left on that once dirty dish. It's now been wiped thoroughly clean. And so God saying that he is going to wipe Jerusalem and turn Jerusalem upside down is really his way of describing the absolute totality of his judgment. No one is going to be spared. They're all going to be 
wiped away. And then finally, we see the Lord vowing in verse 14, I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Here we see the imagery of Judah becoming like prey and spoil. And this imagery depicts their utter helplessness in the face of God's coming judgment. Here God is saying that when he judges them, they won't be able to do anything about it. They will be helpless. His judgment will be inescapable. So here God uses four images to show that his judgment against his people will be terrifying. It will be inevitable. It will be total. And it will be inescapable. And it will be entirely just. Verse 15. Why is God going to judge Judah? Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. Since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Well, what an indictment that is, isn't it? Your history, Judah, Israel, your history has been a history of one long exercise in provoking me to anger. From the day that you left Egypt up until this day, 900 years or so, you have just rebelled and rebelled and rebelled against me. There have been better periods that have punctuated this national history, but by and large, The history of God's people of Israel and of Judah is a history of national rebellion against their God and their king. And so what is actually truly remarkable is not that God is going to judge his people, but that he delayed his judgment for so long. This text actually shows us that God is a God who is exceedingly patient, who suffers long, who is so very, very slow to anger. However, in the end, if his grace is constantly spurned and rejected, and if his law is repeatedly violated, then this God will come in judgment and he will judge in absolutely righteous anger. And of course, such anger will be all the more fearful for its being so very slow to rise up. And it seems to me, brothers and sisters, that this evening we need to take this truth highlighted here for us in 2 Kings 21 very seriously indeed. 
the truth that the God of the Bible, the God that we worship and adore, the one, the true and the living God is a God of wrath. He is a God of pure, holy, perfect, righteous, glorious anger, who, as Psalm 7 says, is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. Of course, this doesn't mean that God is irascible, that he flies off the handle, as we so often do. It doesn't mean that he's irritable or bad-tempered. No, what the Bible teaches is that the God of heaven and earth is a God who is possessed of the most reasonable, the most controlled, and the most holy wrath. And the frighteningly solemn truth of this passage is that the iniquity of a nation or the iniquity of a church or the iniquity of an individual can actually reach a point of no return. That's what we learn here. Here we see that Manasseh's abject depravity added to the nation's cumulative 900 years almost of apostasy. Those two things together put Judah beyond all hope of recovery. And now all that awaits them is the execution of God's terrifying, inevitable, total, inescapable judgment. I hope you understand this evening that our God is a wrathful God, a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. We should fear lest we provoke our righteous God to anger. Because there is nothing worse than to experience the wrath of our righteous judge. Jonathan Edwards was right. We are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. You may not commit exactly the same sins as Manasseh, But by nature, your heart is just like his. In your natural state, you worship yourself rather than God. In your natural state, you bow down before the idols of sex and money and power instead of bowing down before the Lord. By nature, you trample the most vulnerable underfoot in order to get your own way, disregarding the needs of the helpless. In your natural state, you give your attention to the wisdom of the world rather than listening to the wisdom of God in his word. By nature, you murder people in your heart. You murder people with your words, if not with your hands. By nature, you commit abomination upon abomination. And worst of all, in your natural state, you hate and you despise the God who made you.
by nature, you are and I am a most wicked sinner. In our hearts, just as evil as Manasseh. And therefore, we deserve to be wiped out by God. We deserve to suffer the inescapable terror of God's total, all-consuming wrath. We deserve to suffer it forever in the fires of hell. We deserve to be, as it were, crushed by the hands of our most righteous judge. This is what we all deserve. And you will get what you deserve unless you cry out to God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You will get what you deserve unless you cast yourself in repentance and faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you acknowledged before God that you are a judgment-deserving sinner worthy only of his eternal wrath? And have you flung yourself upon Jesus in self-renouncing trust and faith? If you haven't, then I plead with you this evening to do so, and to do so right now. Do not wait. Because there might come a point when it's too late. Fall on your knees before Jesus now. Ask him to forgive you for all of your sin, and he will. If you don't, then you are still a sinner in the hands of an angry God. But if you have trusted in Christ, then let me assure you this evening, God will not punish you. God will not condemn you. God will not crush you with his hands. God will not send you to hell. You are still a sinner, we all are, but now in Christ you are a forgiven, justified sinner. A sinner who is no longer in the hands of an angry God, but a justified sinner who is in the hands of your most loving Heavenly Father. And this, of course, is because of what God in Christ has done for you. Jesus, your most merciful and your most righteous King, suffered all of God's burning wrath against all of your sin in your place when he died on the cross. On the cross, Jesus, the Holy and the Innocent One, became and was counted as the most evil man ever. Counted as more evil than even evil Manasseh. And he was treated accordingly, wiped out by God's holy wrath. But of course, in so doing, he has wiped away all of your sins. Once you were a sinner in the hands of an angry God, but now you are a justified sinner in the hands of a loving Father. And one day you will be a sinless saint 
enjoying forever God's eternal blessings upon you. All because of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. And all we can therefore say is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.